Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's Friday. That means only one thing. Outkick the culture. New episode. I'm Jason Martin, your host. You can follow me on Twitter at jmartoutkick. A big week all across the pop culture landscape. And we're going to dive into all sorts of things this week. Last week was Rant City. I went in and I went in and I went in on the Emmy nominations. Got a little salty. Okay, I got a lot salty. And I told you that the reason that I designated this podcast explicit was so that I had the option. So last week I went crazy with it. This week, unless I'm reading quotes, I don't think I'm going to use any foul language, but we'll see. It's free and clear. Again, I don't really have a bunch of notes in front of me as usual. I've got kind of a list of things in front of me, things that I definitely wanted to hit today. Probably will not hit them all, but a lot of range here on this show today. Game of Thrones is something I have never really spoken about or written about because that's Clay's domain. Even before I was really doing anything for OutKick, which started in 2014, he was already talking about Game of Thrones. He loves that show. So do I. But... I've always just kind of left it to him, even though I'm kind of the TV critic, the entertainment critic. That's just one that I've left alone. But this podcast enables me to finally speak on it myself and give you my thoughts weekly after each episode airs. And we'll start with uh, Dragonstone, which aired this past Sunday. Also, big news about the showrunners of Game of Thrones and what their future is and a huge backlash to the announcement of their new drama series for HBO. We'll talk about that. Also, Christopher Nolan has a new movie out. It's called Dunkirk. I reviewed it this week at OutKick.com. I don't know if you saw that piece, but if you did, you know where I'm going there, and I'm probably you can probably actually hear the smile on my face as I describe that to you. Then you'll be able to hear kind of the frown as I talk about Netflix Ozark, which hits today, the first 10 episodes, Jason Bateman, Laura Linney, and uh, some other pretty heavy names there, but unfortunately... That shows a bit of a disappointment. We'll get into detail about that. Got a question of the week about David Fincher versus Christopher Nolan. That ought to be interesting and certainly makes sense going into Dunkirk today. O.J. Simpson paroled yesterday. We'll get out as early as October the 1st for the memorabilia, kind of the make good, that put him in jail for a long time for that crime, trying to catch up with what didn't happen in L.A., the way that everyone knows that it should have happened, but he's getting out. What about OJ and pop culture and what all of that means and just sort of my recollection growing up during that time frame and how it sort of shifted my belief in, or maybe my interest level is a better way to describe it, just in true crime and and all of those kinds of things and how it sort of set the stage for headline news to become what it would become and make stars out of urchins like Nancy Grace. So we'll talk a little bit about that today. Also, Linkin Park, their lead singer, commits suicide. And it's just a sad moment. Chris Cornell, of course, just a couple of months ago, did the same thing. I've dealt with suicide in my extended family as well. So we may get into that a little bit also. So there's just a lot to to really talk about today. And there's some theories and, and things like that as well. I don't know that we'll get to them because there's so many specifics. But let's go ahead and start with Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, whose numbers were outrageous in live and next day, or first 24-hour viewing. Season 7 begins with Dragonstone. And you know what? I was... It's not that I was underwhelmed. I was just whelmed. Like, it was just there. It was a good episode of TV, somewhere around a B, a B minus. It was by no means some gigantically just perfect piece of television. I thought the first five minutes were gorgeous and beautiful and fantastic. And really nothing else after that lived up to it. I thought the scene with the hound was awfully good. But at the same time, 
this was a stage setting episode. And the problem with that is there's not that much show left. So if you have to come out and really just sort of set the table, that's a little annoying to me only because you don't have that much to fill. Like you don't have to waste time. You don't have 24 episodes of a season where you can afford 15 of them to be nothing here. You've got seven this year. Now you've got six more. And a lot of what we saw this past Sunday was leading to what's coming, but really didn't take us anywhere. It showed that Jon Snow and Sansa Stark have a difference of opinion. I'm starting to think Sansa might challenge Jon for the North in some way, not like in a death way, but in a there's going to be different factions of people that buy into her belief and his belief, and that's going to cause trouble. You've got Danny and Tyrion and the crew doing their thing. And, you know, Danny has never been my favorite character. Just really hasn't been. I'm not a big dragon guy anyway, but it really doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just, I feel like the show has focused more on her in in-game moments than anybody else. When it's time for the end of a season, when it's time for the end of a key episode, we'll see some Jon Snow from time to time. Occasionally we'll see Cersei. But if you had to really say who is it that dominates those moments, it's Daenerys Targaryen. And her importance to getting to the Iron Throne can't be understated. But at the same time, she's just not as she's not as interesting to me as some of the other characters. And I wish that it was spaced out differently. My my only real qualm with Game of Thrones, and I'm not a medieval guy at all, but I'm so glad that I've watched Game of Thrones and I'm about to start reading the books, and that's gonna be quite the undertaking, obviously. But Game of Thrones is the same week after week after week after week after week. They do the same tactic. They do it in the same way every single time. And I think that if they mixed it up, they would be better and more varied. But what they do works because every viewer wants to see the next chapter of every story. I think... That is where the show makes a little bit of a mistake or a misstep from time to time. Because you know from episode to episode, we're going to find out what's happening with Cersei and and Jaime and on the Iron Throne. We're going to check in with Daenerys and Tyrion. Then we're going to check out Arya and what's happening with her and Ed Sheeran, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Here is the North and Jon Snow and everything that's going on there. Here is Sam and that disgusting montage that we saw on Monday that was certainly effective because it showed just how bad his life is and what he's having to go through in order to keep Gilly safe, to keep himself alive, and also to try and figure out where enough Dragonglass exists to take down the White Walkers. And when you talk about Dragonglass, and I saw this posted a couple of seasons ago, John and Sam were discussing the White Walkers and talking about Dragonglass, and John said, you'd need a mountain of it. And then on Sunday night, when Sam realized where the Dragonglass was, he said, there's a mountain of it. It was a callback. It was letting you know that enough exists to potentially take down the ice. Last week, I hosted OutKick with Jeff Schwartz. I know a lot of you checked in, and I really appreciated some of the kind words that were said. We had his brother Mitch on, on Friday, who plays for the Kansas City Chiefs. Self-confessed nerd, huge Game of Thrones fan, has read all the books. Talked about how the first book is called A Game of Thrones, but the series is called A Song of Ice and Fire. Ice being the White Walkers, fire being the dragons. And that that's the ultimate conflict. That everything else that we're seeing is sort of tertiary to the larger conflict that is beyond human understanding. Like, yes... She's the mother of dragons, but we don't fully understand how dragons work. She's just able to control them. So that makes her ultimately powerful in a way no one else can be. And then on the ice side, the White Walkers. Well, who controls the White Walkers? Jon Snow does. So in effect, those two are the the two most powerful characters in the show, but everybody is focused on the Iron Throne. That's where the betting odds are. That's where everybody's paying attention. I think that's misdirection. I think who's on the Iron Throne at the end isn't what we should be worried about. We should be focused on what Mitch talked about, which is the ice versus the fire. And who are the three people that are going to be riding the dragons? There's Danny, obviously. And then some people assume Jon Snow is going to find out he's a Targaryen this year, and he's going to be on one, and Tyrion might be on the third. But we really don't know at this point. What we do know is if Daenerys gets there too fast, 
she will not be the one that's there at the end. A lot of people think that's how the show will end. I think that the Cersei death is certainly the most important thing other than the Joffrey death that we could see on this show. But I think the Cersei death is the biggest. She's been made out to be the villain from the very beginning. So that's going to be the final piece of fan service. But Game of Thrones is not something that needs or should have a happy ending. And I don't get the sense it's going to. I get the sense that there's something far worse than Cersei. And that if Cersei is taken out, we will find that out just before the series ends. And there's no actual ending to it past that. Like, we will know, my God, this just got real freaking terrible. And then, boom, it's over. And then we're left to wonder. Or, and this is the other thing, if you wanted to show unity and go in a different direction, what if there is no Iron Throne? What if the Iron Throne is destroyed? Maybe during a war or this final great battle and the throne physically is destroyed, which is a symbol for how the seven kingdoms are all kind of going to become independent states as opposed to what they've been with a supreme ruler that kind of controls things until they're killed. I don't know that that's what's going to happen, but I think the idea that no one's on the Iron Throne at the end is one that should at least be considered, especially if you're placing odds. Sure, Cersei could still be on it at the end. She absolutely could. That could be the villain ending. It could be Danny. It could be Jon Snow. If, if I had my druthers, it would be Leon and Mormont. Because Mormont is awesome. Or Tyrion, even. Like somebody very, very different. But I do believe that there's a chance that there will be no Iron Throne at the end of of this series and that that is what potentially makes it so intriguing. And that is how we see the progression that we never have before. We don't know yet. There's still a lot to watch, but again, the show does the same thing. We catch up with them. Then we catch up with them. Then we catch up with them. Then we catch up with them. And then finally we catch up with them. What I would love to see is a few of those episodes, maybe half a season. We see that, but the other half we focus on not more than two stories. We don't need to see everybody in every episode. How about we spend an hour learning about Sam and Gilly in their life in more detail? How about we spend an hour in the North watching Sansa and Littlefinger and Jon Snow and that crew? Then how about we go to King's Landing and spend an entire hour there for an episode? One of the things I love so much about Lost is that Lost focused on one, sometimes two. And if there was some kind of a connection between other characters, we might see that. But we saw stories where we found out about Jack and everything that was happening in Jack's past. We would see flashbacks of that, and then we'd see the present and how it informed the decisions he was making then. Same thing with Orange is the New Black. You didn't see every character in every episode of Orange is the New Black. When it was time to see what was going on with Crazy Eyes and how she became Crazy Eyes, they would spend a lot of time showing us Crazy Eyes. We still know all these other characters exist, but it gives you something to look forward to. Every episode of Thrones, I know I'm going to see a little bit of everything. And I don't think that that is necessarily the right tactic to employ all the time. I'd like to see that half the time. But I would love to see more character and arc-specific episodes where we really have time to spend with these people and get a look at what they're doing, what they're thinking, what their motivations are, and just kind of live with them as opposed to being transported across the map that we see every week during the opening credits in Ramin Jawadi's song. I don't think it's ever going to happen because I just don't think that's the way Game of Thrones is done. It makes Game of Thrones easy to consume, because you can check off all the boxes and you can say, well, all right, Danny was here last week. Now they're here. And Jorah, we didn't know he was still there, but now we know he's here. It's like every chess piece has to move every week. I don't think that's necessary. I think that makes it so it's good that the show is ending fairly soon. Because you can only do this for so long. I do think if they slowed it down and focused on each character individually, 
we would have a chance to care more about all of them as opposed to a select few. So that's my initial thought there. Now to Arya. The opening was absolutely fantastic. Just fantastic. The sort of retribution for the famous, infamous, I guess, Red Wedding, taking out House Frey, that just fantastic line about leaving one wolf and what that means for the sheep. The idea that winter came for House Frey, all of it was beautiful. It was the coolest thing they've done with Arya in a long time. Maisie Williams played that perfectly. Super. And then we saw Arya later with Ed Sheeran. And of course, there was a firestorm over Ed Sheeran. The thing about it was this, and I tweeted this out. I don't care that Ed Sheeran was in Game of Thrones. He's fine. You know, he's singing a song and all this. And, you know, I read somewhere that, you know, Maisie's a big Ed Sheeran fan and he was kind of brought in as something she would think was really cool. The thing about Ed Sheeran being in Game of Thrones is simply that Game of Thrones doesn't need Ed Sheeran. The thing about Game of Thrones is, with the exception of Sean Bean, a lot of people don't even know Sean Bean, and some people knew Lena Headey, and there were, you know, certainly Peter Dinklage was out there a little bit, but most of these people have become stars because of Game of Thrones. They didn't come in as stars. This was not a star-studded cast when the show began. These were not names we knew. Kit Harrington and Sophie and Maisie and all of the folks that we come to know and love on this show. I mean, Littlefinger, who I absolutely love, he was on The Wire, but you don't necessarily remember Tommy Carcetti. A lot of you might have, but a lot of you unfortunately didn't watch The Wire. It's one of the greatest series in the history of television. I wrote about it for OutKick, made number four on my drama list, which is something else I'm going to tackle, may not have this week. But I've had a lot of people saying, you know, with some of these new shows, since I wrote my top 10 piece, which was the initial assignment I gave myself for OutKick, was to write those 10 long-form pieces and rank the 10 dramas that had meant the most to me. But The Leftovers didn't exist when I made that list. Fargo didn't exist when I made that list. Game of Thrones had not really peaked enough to where I could have included it. I also put something at 10 that I shouldn't have put at 10. You know, Deadwood means more to me now than it did at that point in time. Justified became a much better show. There are a lot of things like that. So I'm going to revisit these rankings. That might be next week. But in terms of Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones stars have become stars because of what they've done on Game of Thrones. This was not Ocean's Eleven. This was not Brad Pitt, George Clooney, Julia Roberts, Andy Garcia, and that crew. This was a bunch of relative unknowns who are now household names. Ed Sheeran is a household name for most people. So you bring him on, that's something you see in a big-budget motion picture as a cameo. It's not something that you would expect to see in Game of Thrones. Did it bother me? No. It just felt tacky a little bit. But if it made Maisie Williams happy, that's fine. For people to be upset and like beside themselves that Ed Sheeran dared to be in an episode of Game of Thrones is ridiculous. Get over yourselves. It was like a four-minute deal. Most of it was singing, and then he just kind of sat there, and the other actors in the scene sort of did their thing with Maisie. This was not the Hindenburg disaster, folks. This was a musician and a very, very famous celebrity taking part in a show that I'm sure he's a fan of and a show where probably a lot of the people on the show are fans of his. It is not the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. Slow your roll. But the Arya stuff was great. We'll see where it we'll see where it goes. Looks like based on the pre-air photos that I tweeted out from my account at jmartoutkick a couple of days ago, HBO sends us to me every week, and then I'll, I'll put them out there on Twitter for you. A lot of start coming this week. Uh, also a pretty interesting character, Greyjoy, going to visit Danny and Tyrion. So there's definitely going to be a lot to go here. And there's only six episodes left this season, and then there's the reports that the final season, all the episodes are going to be feature-length. So you're basically going to have movies to end the series. I think it's six episodes. I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it is six. So that would mean you get 12 hours of content over six weeks. That is a very bold move. But it would pay off because people love Game of Thrones, and they should. It's an absolutely great series. The last thing I'll say about it this week, and we'll continue to talk more specifically as we, as we go forward into this, is that Game of Thrones is not the best show in the history of television. And the fact that its ratings are what they are 
means nothing to its level of quality. Quality's subjective anyway, but Honey Boo Boo did ridiculous ratings, and it's absolute trash. A lot of reality TV does insane ratings, and it's just filth. Game of Thrones is a great television show. It ain't Breaking Bad. It's not Mad Men. To me, it's not Lost, but it has risen into my top ten. I'm not exactly sure where it would slot. I think maybe somewhere around seven or eight. I really do like the show. But don't look at the ratings and assume that means it's the greatest show in TV history. If you think it is, great. But Game of Thrones, what it is, is the greatest event in the history of television. And by event, I mean something that's continuous, not the MASH finale, for example, or something like that. As a show, it's an event. It is something everyone, you feel like when you sit down and you turn off the lights and you sit on the love seat and you turn on the flat screen and you turn on the surround sound or the sound bar and you tune into Game of Thrones, you don't feel like you're alone because you know how many millions of people are joining you and you're watching it live. And then afterwards, you're going to go on social media and you're going to talk about it. That's an event. I don't know how many television shows you watch and you actually can almost feel the rest of the world watching it along with you. There are other instances, but again, it's like Breaking Bad's finale. You could classify that way. Series finales are different. Those are events. But for a series on a weekly basis to be an event is a magical achievement and maybe one of the smartest things I've ever said in terms of predictions since I started doing this was before Game of Thrones started. And when they first announced that that show was happening, I had never heard of the books by this point, didn't know who George R.R. Martin was, was not big into high fantasy by any stretch of the imagination. As soon as I saw that, I said, this has the potential to be one of the biggest shows in history. And that's exactly what we've seen. And it's only going to grow. 10.1 million viewers day of and in the first 24 hours. If you include DVR and streaming and all that kind of stuff, astronomical numbers. HBO knows it's being pirated left and right, and years ago they said it doesn't matter. We got so many people watching it, all this does is prove how many more people are watching it, make sure everybody is exposed to it. It's fine. I think that's the right way to look at it, because people are going to pirate it anyway. You might as well lean into it, at least to some extent. You're not happy about it. You wish everybody had a subscription. But you also wish that six people weren't using the same HBO Go account, and I can promise you they are. So a good start for Game of Thrones, not an A+, but I would go somewhere around a, on a B or B-. minus. I should go to Dunkirk here because I just mentioned A+, but I got to stay with David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, the people that were responsible, the showrunners for the television show. Obviously, George wrote the books, but David and D.B. have kind of been in charge of the show from the beginning, and they wrote the season opener as well. And then comes the news of Confederate. Confederate will begin production right after the final season of Game of Thrones. Which means this thing is not exactly right around the corner. You're probably talking 2019. Maybe late 2019. So it's going to be a minute. But that did not stop everybody from losing their minds about this as soon as it was announced. After I tweeted it out, they sent out the press release. Casey Bloys announced it, and then they sent out the press release on Thursday. And I tweeted it out, and I the one-paragraph synopsis, I, I recopied into a note and put it out there so you could read exactly what the synopsis of that show was. And people just flew off the handle about this. And this is that synopsis for you if you didn't see that tweet. Confederate chronicles the events leading to the Third American Civil War. The series takes place in an alternate timeline where the southern states have successfully seceded from the Union, giving rise to a nation in which slavery remains legal and has evolved into a modern institution. The story follows a broad swath of characters on both sides of the Mason-Dixon demilitarized zone. That's freedom fighters, slave hunters, politicians, abolitionists, journalists, the executives of a slaveholding conglomerate, and the families of people in their thrall. So slavery is legal, and that's all people needed to see. They immediately jumped to the conclusion that this show would be used by the alt-right to be some kind of a rallying cry. The alt-right are a bunch of pricks. We all know this. They're a bunch of complete jerks. Like, it's... This is well-established at this point. 
But we don't know what this show is yet, guys. They have not even begun to think about this. They have thought about this idea for years. They thought it was going to be a feature-length movie at first, and they, you know, HBO wants to lock those guys up, and they've already got a new show. Once Game of Thrones is over, they're going to move right into Confederate. And with the hype machine of Game of Thrones and with Game of Thrones attached to their names, it's going to come with so much anticipation, and now it's going to come with controversy. That's perfect. Controversy creates cash. That was a book by Eric Bischoff. And it's absolutely right. But Benioff and Weiss actually had to respond to this. And here is what they said to Vulture. Because this is the question that was asked by uh, that publication. Another concern some have raised is that a show like this could end up as almost pornography or wish fulfillment for white supremacists and the alt-right. What's your reaction to that worry about a show where the South won the Civil War. Before I read their answer, you realize this is fiction, right? Like, slavery sucks. We know this. We talked about this on on Outkick the Coverage many times. Who is out there in favor of racism? There are a few dopes that are in favor of everything. Infanticide. There are a few people in favor of that, too. But generally, we all know infanticide is abhorrent. Generally, we know slavery is completely unacceptable and a black mark on the history of this country and something that we feel at least some semblance of shame that it ever even happened, even though most of us, or maybe even all of us listening to this right now, and certainly me, had nothing to do with it. But this is a piece of fiction in an alternate timeline. And by no means, when I read the synopsis of this originally, Did I think, boy, they are going to glorify slavery. But that's where people went. Because people are so worried that anything that might depict something they disagree with could lead to that becoming real. But at the same time, most of The Handmaid's Tale showcased something that they called dangerously close to reality, which is complete bullcrap. And it's basically the same thing. If you want to say this about Confederate, say it about The Handmaid's Tale, that it's some kind of alt-right, white supremacist, male-dominated fantasy. But Confederate is just a television show, and it's one that's two or three years away. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know who's in it. We don't know what perspective it's going to come from. But I'm pretty damn sure one of the perspectives it's not going to come from is the one that is pro-slavery. Now to the answer that these guys gave. I think that using the word winning creates the wrong image. In the world of Confederate, it was a standstill. They maintain their position. The North maintains theirs. What people need to recognize is, and it makes me really want to get into the show, this shit is alive and real today. I think people have got to stop pretending that slavery was something that happened and went away. The shit is affecting people in the present day. And it's easy for folks to hide from it because sometimes you're not able to map it out, especially with how insidious racism has become. But everyone knows that with Trump coming into power, a bunch of shit that had always been there got resurfaced. So the idea that this would be pornography goes back to people imagining whips and plantations. What they need to be imagining is how fucked up things are today and a story that allows us to now dramatize it in a more tangible manner. Okay, so Trump's to blame. This is something that is going to be very anti-him and anti-guys you know, guys like Milo Yiannopoulos and Richard Spencer and Stephen Miller and some of these folks. This was a political statement. This was a political answer to that question because... These guys know that the vitriol coming from them is coming from one side of the aisle. And there's only one way to get around that, and that is to align with that side of the aisle. That made me roll my eyes. Just like Mike Vick apologizing and saying he shouldn't have said what he said about Colin Kaepernick. Whether or not you agree with Colin Kaepernick's situation, whether or not you agree that Mike Vick was right or wrong about Colin Kaepernick's hair, It was an opinion, and it was a legitimate opinion. Apologizing for opinions is awful. Anytime 
unless you come to the realization that you were wrong in your opinion. And I don't think Michael Vick came to that realization. I think Michael Vick saw that all of a sudden people saw nothing but the dog killer again and all of what he had done to try and rehab himself since he got out of jail was in danger. And I look at Benioff and Weiss's statement and some of the other people associated with Confederate and I see almost the same thing. It's like, no, 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 I promise we're on your side on this. Don't worry about this. We know this. The only people that are clamoring and saying that this is going to be some kind of fantasy for white supremacists or the alt-right are people that are dying for this to be a white supremacist fantasy or a wet dream for the alt-right because their professional outrage depends on it. That's what's most insidious about this culture today is that there are people that want nothing more than to be perpetually and now professionally offended in the case of somebody like DeRay McKesson. They're looking for a reason. This is why they get up in the morning, so they can be victims. Sometimes not even victims themselves, but so they can attach themselves to a cause, so that they can hear themselves talk, or so that they can feel like what they're saying places them on some pedestal above everybody else. Benioff and Weiss didn't need to come out and say this. Doesn't mean they don't believe it. I knew as soon as I saw the story, I said, well, this is probably going to be from a liberal perspective. I immediately thought that. I never looked at it and thought, this is going to glorify slavery. I thought the exact opposite. I thought it was going to make the idea of slavery, and I knew Trump was probably associated with it, at least in terms of like philosophy from an anti-Trump perspective. But I always saw it as a political statement, but not coming from the right. That's insane. But the right isn't going to come out against something like Confederate. That's not how they operate. That's how the left operates. Politics of disinformation, Saul Alinsky, rules for radicals, all of those kinds of things. Their entire political ideology depends on this kind of stuff being blown completely out of proportion. This show is two or three years away. Who knows? Maybe it never even happens. We're that far away from it actually being a reality. And it's already a controversy. Get a grip. Let's wait and watch 20 minutes of it before we assign motive, agenda, or we try and take down anyone associated with it. Because we simply don't know. So don't waste your tweets. Don't waste your Facebooks. Don't waste your Instagrams, your Snapchats, or anything else railing about a TV show we know nothing about except for about a paragraph premise. And it's sad that Benioff and Weiss actually had to address this and had to do it in such a way that it kowtowed to one segment of the population. So that's Confederate. We'll see how it goes. I don't know whether or not I like the idea or not yet. I just don't know. There have been great ideas that have sucked and terrible ideas that have turned out to be fantastic. I was sure 21 Jump Street was going to stink. Then it turned out to be really damn funny. That's just one example. There's all sorts of TV shows that the premise is just absolutely god-awful and turns out to be fantastic. You never know. But this thing's 2019. At the earliest... Slow down. I've already said slow your roll once in this podcast. I'll say it again. Slow your roll. And now after I say that, I'm going to speed up my roll. Because Dunkirk is freaking amazing. Christopher Nolan is my favorite director. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I said it right off the top of my review at Outkick.com, which you can read right now. Dark Knight's my favorite movie ever. It's never going to be topped. Batman was so important to me growing up as a kid, watching the old 60s show, R.I.P. Adam West. Watched it on what used to be called the Family Channel back when I lived in Virginia as a child. I loved the rogues gallery. Why Batman spoke to me was because of the villains. I loved the cast of characters. So I you know, used to draw. I was a terrible drawer, but I used to try and draw Batman or come up with stories for the Joker or the Riddler or the Penguin or even some of the lesser known guys. I've always cared about Batman. It's always been important to me because there's a reality to it all. 
So that really helped Christopher Nolan in my eyes, but Memento was fantastic. I've gone back and seen Following, obviously, which you can watch on Netflix, which is really his first feature-length film. And it was certainly minimalistic, but I liked it. Insomnia, misstep. Not terrible, but just sort of, just a, just a film. Just one you, you watch and then you just kind of move on from. The three Batman films, I remember watching Batman Begins at a midnight show with some of my friends in Asheville, pardon me, in uh, Greenville, South Carolina. And when it ended, the people with me stood up and applauded. And I've never done that in a film. And I said, you know what? I'm going to do it too. And that was Batman Begins. That wasn't even The Dark Knight. I saw The Dark Knight in IMAX in Charlotte. Won the official one sheet for answering a trivia question in line. Ended up seeing the movie three times that day. Did the same thing with The Dark Knight Rises. Saw Inception multiple times in the first day. Only saw Interstellar once. Because Interstellar was merely just good. Christopher Nolan is all about fantasy and manipulating time and doing things in a non-linear fashion. That's one of his calling cards. You know when you're watching a Christopher Nolan movie for a couple of reasons. One, if time is being messed with in a certain way. Two, if you hear Hans Zimmer. And three, there's a certain filter that seems to be on all of his cameras. A lot of it because he uses the 70 millimeter and the 35 millimeter and likes to shoot some parts in IMAX and things like that. There's a professionalism to it, but almost a rustic professionalism, an imperfect professionalism to the way he shoots his films. But he's, without question, my favorite director ever. So here comes Dunkirk, the first time that he's actually just told a true story. Now, with his own characters and with his own spin... But it's a true story. And one question I got asked this week was, why would I be interested in a Chris Nolan true story? It's a fair question, but I think it was time for Christopher Nolan to do something like this because of how long he has delved in the fantasy land to be as talented a director as he is. I used checked off the boxes a little earlier, but you want to be able to check off those boxes. You can tell great stories, but if you can actually depict a real event and do it with class, dignity, and purity, that could take you to another level. The Dark Knight was never going to be nominated for an Academy Award. I think it should have been. But it's not the kind of thing that the Academy is going to reward, despite how good it was. Here, he is, without question going to get an Academy Award nomination as a director, and the film is going to get a Best Picture nod. I can go ahead and tell you that right now. And unless I see something really great, this is going to be the one I'll be picking to win. Dunkirk is basically flawless. Nolan generally runs long with his films. Here he did not. 108 minutes and you're out. And it's 108 minutes. It is not five-minute intro, five-minute outro, It is 108 intense, emotional, draining, harrowing, mind-blowing moments. It starts with a simple black screen and the word Dunkirk, and then immediately somebody's running. And it ends the same way most Nolan films end, with a really quick cut to black and written and directed by Christopher Nolan. And then before you know it, you're walking out of the theater with your jaw on the floor. And that's what's going to happen. That's how good Dunkirk is. It's told so beautifully. The time element is used in a way that makes the film more than just a little bit of a true story. True stories can be very boring if they're told just as they happen. Nothing is different about Dunkirk in terms of the story, but the way in which the various characters converge upon one another, where they are in the fight, and when we're seeing them at different times makes it more interesting, and it keeps you just a little bit off balance. We see Tom Hardy in the sky as Farrier. Those scenes are just majestic. Go see this thing in IMAX if you can. I did not. That's not where the media screening was, but I will be going back to see it in IMAX. I think you should see it in the loudest place possible and in the biggest place possible, where the screen is attacking you, because the film will attack you in every way. But the aerial scenes in particular are just outstanding. And Tom Hardy, who the only thing about Tom Hardy is, and it's always this way, especially in Nolan films, can't understand the guy. Could not understand him, obviously, as Bane. 
But here he's also got a mask over his face because he's in an aircraft, and it's a hard time to hear him. But the thing about Dunkirk is there's so little dialogue in this film because the film itself is the story. You don't need to hear these people talk because you can watch what's happening to them. Their facial expressions do most of the damage for you. Cillian Murphy is in it, another Nolan vet. And he talks a little bit, but he's another guy that can emote his way through a movie. Fionn Whitehead's fantastic. He, I guess you'd call him the lead. He's somebody that you probably don't know a whole lot about. Younger guy. But you're going to know about him going forward. Mark Rylance, who won an Academy Award for Bridge of Spies, is the most likable character in the entire thing. Like, there is something very just regal about this man. But he's fantastic. He doesn't talk a lot. Doesn't need to. Nobody in Dunkirk needs to talk a lot. Nolan's camera is doing the talking. The setting is doing the talking. The truth behind this rescue mission and whether or not these guys were going to get out alive tells the story. The boats, the water, the sand, the sky, the airplanes tell the story. The sounds, my God, the sounds tell the story. Hans Zimmer's soundtrack which basically never stops, tells the story. You never have a moment to relax in this film. This movie is going to be shown in history and social studies classes in high school and college long after we're all dead. It's that good. I remember watching Patton in my junior AP history class back in 1996. The only other film since that point that I thought would be taught in school was The Social Network. And that would be taught in film school. Because it is that good as well. Dunkirk, which doesn't have a lot of cussing in it, doesn't have a lot of blood in it, is perfect to get people interested in history. And I urge you to watch it, and then I urge you to go read about it. And I urge you to find a source that's unbiased. So much of history is being rewritten right now. Christopher Nolan told a story about something we should have already known, but a lot of folks are going to walk into the theater and are not going to have known anything about. And that's sad. That should not be that way. We should be children of history. We should be students of the past so that we can learn from it and actually progress in the present. And although there are some arguments amongst the characters in Dunkirk from time to time, generally speaking, all of these people are just trying to survive. And they're willing to do anything with each other to make that happen. They're terrified, so they make a couple of bad decisions along the way. But you're rooting for everybody. This is a stand-up-and-cheer film by the end of it. And it's a reminder, and Chris Nolan has notoriously done this, by the way, throughout much of his career. There's a hope behind Chris Nolan. That's why I like him so much. As off-kilter as he does things, the way he manipulates time, the way he keeps you off-balance, the way his stuff is just a little bit strange... You generally don't feel like crap when you walk out of a Christopher Nolan film. You feel overwhelmed, but you feel satisfied and you feel strangely content by what just took place. Dunkirk has one simple message. And I think it's apt for the times that we live in, here and elsewhere. If we put aside the garbage, if we start focusing on the macro and not letting the micro destroy who we are, not looking at someone and taking one thing that they believe and turning them into Satan. If we actually look for the similarities, look for what we have in common, and use that to build a bond, there is nothing human beings cannot accomplish. Especially when ego is thrown out. It is amazing. I think Theodore Roosevelt said this. It is amazing what man can achieve when he doesn't care who gets the credit. In Dunkirk, it didn't matter who got them out. It was that they got them out. And they all worked towards that goal. This is a unity film. It's a hopeful film, even though it's a 108-minute hellscape. But you walk out feeling like everybody that was in that theater with you, your family, your friends, your loved ones, Yes, even the politicians you disagree with. That at some point you are all in this together. You can focus on little nonsense 
or you can go the other way. Dunkirk says survive together, die alone. It's an A+. That's the first time I have ever delivered that review since I've been doing movie reviews. Never given anything an A+. Dark Knight's still not going to be topped. I will not watch Dunkirk as much as I watch The Dark Knight. It's not infinitely rewatchable. But it is an absolute masterpiece. It is a work of art. It is fabulous. I urge you to take your family to see it. I urge you to take your kids as long as they can take some of the intensity to see it. And then to have a conversation with them afterwards. Don't just let them see the film and then move on. No, have a conversation with them. Take them to a bookstore. Find a history book. Sit down with them and read 50 pages a day about what actually happened in this country. And I'm not saying pick up Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States because that's B-crap. Go find the real sources. Read from the founders. Whatever it is, get people involved in what actually happened. History is so fascinating, so interesting, and so enriching. You just have to do a little bit of work. Dunkirk is the Sistine Chapel in 2017 right now. I cannot say enough about how great it is. Kudos to Christopher Nolan, who again validates why he's the best director in the world. And why he's probably going to take home his first best director Oscar. From that to Ozark. Ozark hit Netflix today. A lot of you excited about it. You know what? I was kind of excited about it. I remember seeing that Breaking Bad was in the comparisons and all of these kinds of shows, but Breaking Bad was the main comparison. I'm here to tell you that Ozark is not Breaking Bad. And the fact that it is compared to it is a huge overreach and problem for this show. Because if you compare this to Breaking Bad, it's like comparing the godfather to witless protection with Larry the Cable Guy. Ozark is fine. Ozark is okay. It's all right. But it's not great. And it's a Netflix original in a time where so many Netflix originals are great. So it's a disappointment. Especially when you look at a cast that has the talent of Jason Bateman and Laura Linney and so many of these other people that you like. And they're not even the stars of the film when you or, or the, of the show when you really get into it. Jason Butler Harner, another guy that's really talented that you've seen before. And you'll see him and you'll recognize him. A lot of these people you'll recognize by face, but you don't necessarily recognize them by name. Peter Mullen, who was in Quarry, which is a far superior show to Ozark. A couple of people in Quarry actually are in Ozark. Peter Mullen's accent... And his voice is just unbelievable. And then there's Kimberly Breland. Well, that's what she was called on The Americans. Julia Garner steals this show. She plays Ruth. A conflicted teenage girl who's a real badass. Who's willing to kill, but who is very, very torn by a father that's incarcerated that is still trying to control her through fear intimidation, and insults. What's Ozark about? Jason Bateman's a financial planner. That sort of masks the fact that he is a successful money launderer for a Mexican cartel. Stuff goes wrong within the first 45 minutes of Ozark. The show drops some bodies. And to save his life, Marty Bird, that's Bateman's character, comes up with the idea because he had been given a brochure a little while ago, that the Ozarks have so much coastline, and it's a perfect place to money launder, so please don't kill me and don't kill my family. So that takes them to the Ozarks from Chicago. And the Ozarks are filled with a lot of backwoods criminals, a lot of traditional criminals, and this is where I do think there's a little bit of a comparison to Justified, but this show is not in the same universe as Justified. But if you really think about Boyd Crowder and Mags Bennett, Margot Martindale's character, or... Michael T. Williamson's Elston Limehouse, or even Michael Rappaport and his family, and Dewey and all of those folks. There was sort of a clan mentality to all of the crime that was happening in Harlan, Kentucky. You see that kind of same thing in Ozark. 
with Peter Mullen's group and there's just numerous things. The cartel's not nearly as big a story. Obviously, he's doing it to save his life and that that threat is constantly over him, but it's really the people in the Ozarks and Ruth's family is the other one. So the premise of this show is really, really good. It's interesting. A money launderer who doesn't seem to be the worst guy in the world but got caught up in something bad all of a sudden finds himself owing about $8 million that he claims he can launder in a certain amount of time, and so he uproots his family and moves them there. That's a cool idea. And this guy doesn't look like he was born for crimes just the way Walter White didn't. So, hey, Breaking Bad, right? And drugs are involved, too. Hey, Breaking Bad, right? No. There was a difference between Breaking Bad and Ozark that extends past the people playing the roles or the people behind the cameras. It is that Breaking Bad was fun to watch. Now, early, it wasn't quite as much fun to watch, but there was always a subtle humor to Breaking Bad. That's why you would see people like Bob Odenkirk or Bill Burr or folks like that. Ozark is almost entirely committed to being a slog. I have had so little fun watching this show over the past few weeks. I could not wait for this to be over. All of these people on this show are so unlikable. You can only root for them for maybe five minutes at a time. Breaking Bad spaced out its big moments. Within the first hour of Ozark, we saw Jason Bateman masturbating in his car. We found out his wife was cheating on him and he had the sex tape. We saw bodies dropped, one of them out of a skyscraper. And we saw three or four people shot, dead. All of this within the first hour. Every episode felt like, how many things can we throw into this that are salacious and controversial and over the top to just shock the audience? Like that was the goal. It was always about the sizzle. It was never about the steak with Ozark. Or that's how it felt. It felt like everything was rushed. The way I described it in the review is it's like you're on a date with a beautiful woman and you decide, I really want to have sex with her. And you're still at dinner, but you just decide to go ahead and take your clothes off and get ass naked right there in the restaurant before the check comes. You couldn't even wait. That money was burning a hole in your pocket. You had to show her your penis right then and there. That's what Ozark felt like to me. Bateman is great. He is that rare actor that can play comedy. We saw that in Arrested Development. He can play black comedy in something like Bad Words. Then he can turn around and he can play absolute sadistic, subtle evil. Or a character in a thriller. The Gift, 2015. Fantastic movie. If you didn't see it, go watch it. Absolutely underrated film that most people did not watch that was just tremendous. Jason Blumhouse film, actually. And then here he is in Ozark. And he plays a guy that you're sort of supposed to root for, but he's a protagonist unlike Walter White because at least Breaking Bad made you feel sympathy for Walter White first. You do not like Marty Bird early. Then they try to make you like him a little bit after the fact. They should have eased you into this. But Ozark's not about easing you into anything. They throw every possible buzzword that they can into this thing. They show explicit gay sex. They show a ton of blood. They show a child pulling the innards out of an animal on a dock. Whatever it is that can draw a rise or make you go, Ozark's good for you. To me, that makes me roll my eyes because it all seems so artificial because there's nothing natural about it and it's not delivered in a gradual way that makes logical sense. Other than the talent on the show, the best thing about the show is the title screen. The show comes up, each episode comes on with just the word Ozark, and then you get two or three minutes of a cold open. And then you get the show logo, which is an O, and it almost looks like an Omega O. And then a cross in the center of the O, which leaves four quadrants. And then four objects that change from episode to episode are inside that O. One that is enough that looks like a Z. The second one looks like an A. The third looks like an R, and the fourth looks like a K. 
but the objects they place inside the O are objects relative to that episode, so they change each time. So maybe you'll see logs that kind of look like a K, or maybe you'll see a hypodermic needle that looks kind of like an R, or whatever it is. Like, that's the way they do it, like goggles, like swim goggles that somehow look like an R because of the curvature. That, to me, is clever. I My favorite part of each episode was that. I would stop each one, each screener, and look at that, and that was going to tell you kind of what was coming. You didn't know the like why or the purpose of it yet, but you would by the end of the episode. But I just thought that was clever. That was a smart thing. also liked that they use Radiohead at the end of the pilot because, you know, Radiohead being my favorite band. There are things to like about Ozark, and as you watch it, you really do believe that there's a good show here. You're just not actually watching it. Maybe if they get a season two, that'll happen. There is certainly talent there. The setting is is really attractive to watch and devastating. Like, you get the good stuff and the Riviera, the Redneck Riviera, as they call it, and then you get deep into the woods and darkness and all of those things. But there were just moments watching Ozark where you just did not feel a connection to anything because you just saw through what they were trying to do. I wanted substance. What I got was salacious content over and over and over again. So my recommendation is I can't. I would pass. This is an era of peak TV. There is too much good stuff out there for you to waste your time on things that are merely average. Ozark is not a bad show. Ozark's about a C plus. That's not good enough today, especially when I have so many people write me week after week or tweet me at Jmart Outkick and, and tell me they haven't gotten to see The Leftovers yet or Fargo yet or BoJack Horseman yet or Halt and Catch Fire yet or Lost yet or Friday Night Lights yet or Rectify yet. There's just too much stuff that I could tell you is so much better and worth your time than this for me to recommend this. And if you haven't seen Justified, by God, Ozark is what Justified would be if it was no fun at all. And that's the biggest problem with Ozark is it's not fun to watch. If it's not fun to watch, don't watch it. So swing and a miss as far as I'm concerned with Ozark. There were some good things about it. Not enough for me to actually say waste your time watching it. And I look up at the screen here where I'm recording and I see I've almost gone an hour. And this is kind of what happens, you know. I had this list of stuff that I wanted to hit. And I'm not going to get all to it. I'm not going to get to Fincher versus Nolan this week. We'll save that for next week. We'll talk about the Lincoln Park situation next week. We'll talk more about Nine Inch Nails uh, and their new EP, Add Violence, that came out today, actually, this Friday. And the Defiant ones, which I really want to go into detail about because I absolutely loved it. Especially the Nine Snails part, which I've seen about 20 times. And I want to talk about O.J. Simpson and pop culture with the parole hearing and what that meant. And Tubin's book and FX's series and Ezra Edelman's documentary and how that led me. I watched so much of that trial live. I watched it at home with my parents. I watched it at my grandparents' house. It was always on, and it was everywhere. I got to know those characters, too. They were basically TV characters. I knew who Dennis Fong was. It wasn't just Mark Furman and Marsha Clark and Johnny Cochran and Cato Kalin and some of those names. It was Van Adder and Dennis Fung and Barry Sheck and smaller characters that you would know. But what O.J. Simpson did was open the floodgates for money to be made, and ratings points to be earned inside of courtrooms. No longer was it L.A. law or the practice or suits or something like that 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 had to depict this. Now, Headline News could go 24-7 for three weeks in a row with nothing but Jody Arias coverage. Or for six months in a row with nothing but Casey Anthony coverage. Any case where there was something the least bit salacious, the least bit grabbing. If she was hot, we can make that work. If he was a scoundrel, we can make that work. Scott Peterson, for example. Drew Peterson, for example. It became a business. And it largely became a business 
because people saw dollar signs in their eyes when they saw how O.J. Simpson completely took over this country in 1994 and 1995. And I was part of it. And it, you know, after that point, I started watching a lot more 2020, a lot more Dateline, a lot more 48 Hours. And now you've got things like Investigation Discovery and Live PD and all of these kinds of things. I don't think that it's because we want to see people doing worse than us to build ourselves back up. But I do think spending a ton of time watching something like Nancy Grace is not good for anybody. But it was OJ that really ushered all this in. And so next week we'll get into more detail about the OJ Simpson thing, but there's a couple of things to think about at least in terms of kind of where my head is. I think we're going to leave it there. I really did want to get into a lot more stuff. We're about an hour in. I'm going to go ahead and call it quits and put the rest of the stuff on the back burner, and we'll talk about it next week. Questions of the week, jmartclone at gmail.com. Send them there, or you can tweet me directly at jmartoutkick. You can read my Dunkirk review. You can read my Ozark review, which are certainly different in terms of some of the things that I say there than some of the things that I said here today. Not in terms of, or just in terms of so that I'm not repeating myself. I didn't just read my reviews verbatim to you because what's the point of that? You're listening to the podcast to get new, fresh, exclusive information. But go to outkick.com and read my reviews there. Clay will have his Game of Thrones review up. In the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have him on and we're going to discuss the show and why it means so much to him and his wife, who's read all the books. And we'll talk about Game of Thrones episode two next week and we'll see what else is happening in pop culture. But this week, we saw people jump to political conclusions about a show that's two years out. I would say, instead of doing that, how about we focus on what actually happened in World War II in the story that I followed that with and think about the good instead of the bad. I can be as cynical as anybody. I can be sarcastic to the point of jerkish. It's part of my charm. But I'll tell you, optimism's a lot more fun. It's a lot more important. And especially now, when everybody is just looking for a reason to go. Maybe it's time to Robert Frost this mofo and take the path less traveled by. Just food for thought. I'm Jason Martin. That's Outkick the Culture. Follow me at Outkick. Love the reviews that I've seen. The numbers are still huge on the subscribers. Sponsors coming on board. We're going to continue to have a lot of fun week after week. If you like Ozark, by the way, and I've said this, you know, some people said, oh, I was really looking forward to Ozark, then I read your review. Watch it anyway, guys. I might be wrong. If I want to see something or play something or go somewhere, a review's not going to just necessarily keep me away. What if I'm wrong? You don't know until you actually take that plunge. You might love Ozark and think I'm a complete fool and then tell me so. That's part of the, that's part of the joy of this podcast for me is learning from you what you like, hearing your takes on things. But if you were excited about Ozark, watch Ozark. And I hope I didn't ruin it for you. I hope you like it better than me. Never do I want to be right when I'm ripping something. Because I love the idea that when you sit down to watch television or watch a film or listen to an album or play a game or whatever it is, that that experience is worthwhile to you. If I hated it but you loved it, great. That means your time was not wasted. I wish I could have been there with you. I just couldn't on this one. So my fingers are crossed that everybody that was excited about Ozark and are listening to this podcast and read the review, are still going to watch Ozark, and I hope you think it's the best thing in the world and you think I am a total idiot for what I've said today and what I wrote yesterday. I don't think I am, but I would love to be wrong. Because in general, entertainment, there's nothing to be gained by me being right if it means it's wasted your time or disappointed you. I'm not in this to be right all the time. I'm in this to give you my opinion. I'm not arrogant enough to believe that you're always going to agree with it or you're wrong. Entertainment is subjective. That's the beauty of it. You like what you like. It's like sex. 
Some people like their toes sucked, others don't. Some people like to be bound, others don't. You do you. I hope you dig Ozark. I know you're going to dig Dunkirk. Calm down about Confederate. Game of Thrones is a machine. I think I just covered everything we talked about. That's it. I'll kick the culture. We'll talk to you next week. I'm Jason Martin. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.